who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Nintendo! offices in San Francisco. Welcome to Nintendo Voice Chat for the week of October 31st. And what you might notice on this show is that we actually have two intros. I apologize mm-hmm. for that. But something happened this week. Here to talk with me about it really quickly is Per Schneider. Hi, Jose. Always fun to have you on the podcast, Per. You are one of my favorites. Aw. Uh, Brian is too. a little busy. Hopefully he kicks the door in at some point. And if he doesn't, it's okay. But uh, <laughs> before we get on with our regularly scheduled program, we do want to talk about something that happened this week, which was Nintendo's financial results. Uh, basically, for the second quarter, it came out during news. this week. A little bit. I don't know if we actually have... We should make a Mario sound effect equivalent of that. Bling. But uh, for folks, before we go into this, this is covering the period between July and September. Mm-hmm. And also keep in mind, that uh, this ties in with sort of the forecast that Nintendo put out a few months ago, and we've talked about on this podcast before. But basically, they said, uh, here's a couple of rough numbers for you, and Pear's going to help break some of these down. Uh, their net income was 24.2 billion yen, which is 224 million US, in three months, mm-hmm. uh, ending September 30th. And it is actually a high note compared to the loss of 8 billion yen, that's 74 million, a year earlier. Mm-hmm. So, Per, why don't you talk to folks to help them understand a little bit about well, look, what's going on with the financials? Here. You know, I think, I mean, there, there's some interesting data, the sales data we can talk about afterwards as well. You know, mm-hmm. how many how many Wii U's they actually moved. But, yeah, basically, you know, the, in the wonderful worlds of finance, and especially when you have a, um, a foreign company, a company that has offices around and, and operations around the world, you can see some odd numbers and it can be really hard to understand, right? 
So, you know, Nintendo earned 171.4 billion yen. Maybe we'll talk about it in, in dollars, right? 1.6 billion dollars in the past six men, uh, months, right? But they had an operating loss of 1.9 million dollars. So they're operating, they still had an operating loss. Usually operating loss means that, you know, your core operations are not profitable. You know, there are definitely challenges, obviously, right, when your company is is losing money. But I'll talk about, like, point in time in a second, too, right? Okay, sure. But now comes the confusing part. Their net profit was actually 131.5 million dollars. So they made money. They're profitable this quarter. They made a net profit. And the reason for that is is the exchange rate. And so this is where it gets confusing. Okay, right? this is something I need help with. So the exchange rate is what basically I turn in my dollar for. That's how much yen it's worth. Think correct? about it this way, right? Okay. Like let's say at the beginning at the beginning of the quarter, Nintendo sells 100,000 copies of Hyrule Warriors to GameStop, right? Okay. And uh, you know, they're a Japanese company and they're selling it to a US company and they sell these copies at a certain rate and then they record the revenue. On the Nintendo books, they're saying, all right, these 100,000 copies translate into this amount of revenue, right? And that's above okay. the line revenue. I'm with you. Now, at the end of the quarter, the yen has dropped, right? So the dollar is stronger. Now the money from GameStop actually comes in. So it's no longer just the invoice. You're actually getting the cash now into the company, right? And now you're seeing the below the line gains. And so that's the extra yen you gained by that discrepancy in what you <laughs> sold earlier. Okay. So had the yen actually gone up, it would have gone the other way. Okay, got and it. And they would have actually made fewer dollars below the line. And, so and they would have, yeah, they would have had an, a, a, a loss. Possibly. So we've talked about this on the show before mm-hmm. where the state of the yen sort of also affects Nintendo in Absolutely. certain ways. And I think that uh, it's always been sort of a nebulous concept to me. So this helps under- and, me understand it a lot more. And it, you know, obviously affects companies like Sony as well or, you know, or, or Microsoft, who may have you know foreign uh, foreign subsidiaries in Europe and so forth. So it's a common thing. Um, the reason why it's a bigger story with Nintendo is that you know they obviously want to tell they want to tell a positive story. And and in this ca- case, the you know the up and downs of the of the exchange rate really really affect them. Okay. If their Japanese business was a whole lot lot stronger, right? It was mm-hmm. if it was huge, you wouldn't see it this discrepancy as yeah. much, right? But it's and, interesting because they are doing really well in Japan for the most part they also talked about during this thing that they had at least on the software front for like million sellers within yeah. the past couple of months they had Monster Hunter 4 they had Smash Brothers they had um, sorry give me a second Yokai Watch mm-hmm. uh, 2 yeah. and I think there was one more and it's totally escaping me right now but you know they, they've had some successful software business over there yeah. I guess is what I'm trying to say but it's still not enough yeah for sure I mean but you have to also remember at the phase and this comes down to timing the phase in their business that they're up they're still building up uh, you know they, they're still building up the install base, right? Like okay. in the beginning, when you kick off new consoles, you have a lot of expenses for marketing. You know, like obviously they saw a lot of expense in R and D before this, but now they have all these marketing expenses, all these. You know, sometimes they they drop the the price of the machine below what you know below the money they actually get back. Got it. Um, you know, which is also affected by exchange rate again, right? Mm-hmm. And so. At this point in time, I mean, they would probably love to be doing a lot better. And obviously, they have the 3DS business, which is is running in the back and is not doing as well as they, they're hoping for it to do. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that in a second. Yeah, we're going to talk about but that in a second. But they're still in a phase. All three are still in a phase where they're spending on marketing. And, you know, it's kind of... 
it, it's a tough time, but you can see the business improving over time. Now, okay. I just think the, you know, it's really interesting. Like, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, when you're talking about uh, the operating loss, you know, this is before the intra the income from interest, right? And so when you look at, at Nintendo's interest, they made 1.9 billion yen plus positive and interest on top of that. Okay. And so that's why you're seeing these discrepancies between the two numbers. Got it. So, so the story is not it's not amazing, obviously. Yeah. But they're um, profitable. But it's but they're profitable and it's a good step in the right direction. So what's interesting though is that in looking at the numbers and in uh you know this has been talked about a little bit, Wii U is doing better for them right now, whereas 3DS has slowed down mm-hmm. significantly. So year over year, um, right now, Nintendo reported that they sold 610,000 Wii U consoles during the period of June to September 30th, as we said earlier. Uh, and that's that, twice as much as in the same period that's, yeah, that's last year. Almost so that's twice good. as much as last year. Yeah. And so as of right now, uh, their target for this financial year is 3.6 million. Mm-hmm. They have sold 1.12. So they're still on pace to hit that. Obviously, they haven't passed it yet. We've talked about how that target is woefully low, how they might be lowballing in order to set themselves up for a big success. Whether or not that success is going to happen is totally hinging on how well this holiday works out for them. Yeah, we know that, right? Like how well Amiibo picks up, how well the software they have in the pipe with Smash Brothers, mm-hmm. with Mario Kart getting its updates, with all of the games that they have announced well, at E3 and them showing up on time in twenty in the early part of 2015. Well, look, if you do 1.12 million in the first half of the fiscal year and that first half does not include the holiday shopping season, you're you got to you got to, you know, you got to think that they're going to sell more when they've got, you know, a huge shopping season ahead, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so add to that, you know, obviously Mario Kart is no slouch and Mario yeah. Kart is a top seller and actually a bigger game in the past than Smash Brothers, yeah. right? Uh, but Smash Brothers um, and then the holiday shopping season that should really help yeah and yeah. even Amiibo should somewhat be a shot in the arm potentially that, that'll be I mean that'll be pure profit because that is so cheap to make for them mm-hmm. right like these figurines are so cheap to make that's gonna that's that should be a really big net positive for them so also just to t- wrap up the Wii U sales talk uh, right now Lifetime Wii U has sold 7.2 excuse me 7.29 million units just putting that out there for context now talking about 3DS and how it has slowed year over year Mm -hmm. so um, last year around this time they had sold 2.49 million Mm -hmm. 3DS units it's down to uh, 1.27 million Mm -hmm. Uh, despite a very successful launch of Smash Brothers 3DS which was I think was on September 13th or something in Japan it was still fairly before this report had ended um, That's a big surprise to me, right? And uh, but it points towards the fact that um, the market's looking for a fresh new machine right that's the challenge and so that's where you can see the reaction to push out at least in some of the markets where they could support them and manufacture enough units to actually ship out the the new 3ds and so japan got new 3ds on october 11th and as sales data has been tracked it was a shot in the arm for that business Mm -hmm. like it has been at the top of the charts over there for right now considering it's dedicated gaming hardware dedicated gaming handheld just putting that out there as context for folks and and in japan you've got monster hunter obviously a game that 
which takes launched with that, it. Yeah. that uses the the device. And here again, you know, if you feel bad about the U.S. not getting it, there is no demo game for it, right? Mm-hmm. Smash Brothers, sure, the right the C stick kind of controls are nice, yeah, but that's not the game that that where you say like, oh, you got to get this new machine for this for game. Monster yeah. Hunter. No, totally agree. That said, though. Their 3DS business is in a bit of trouble, though, because mm-hmm. it has slowed, and they've projected for this financial year they're going to sell 12 million 3DSs. Right now, that I don't, I just don't know how that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. New 3DS does sort of help them out in Japan, but until it hits globally, where it's either successful or it isn't, I, I mean, how is that supposed to sort of work out for them this yeah, holiday? I think Pokemon is the big question, right? Pokemon's, Pokemon, according to them, pre-orders are up. They're it looks really solid right now for them yeah. as far as like a sales success. And keep in mind, the last Pokemon X and Y was really big its first weekend. Yeah. Um, so you're right. Pokemon will be that thing. But you're definitely seeing the effect of a slower year for 3DS, even software-wise. Mm-hmm. The only big victory that they're touting is outside of Smash Brothers is Tomodachi Life sold well in the West. It was one over a million units were That's sold. That's crazy, by the way. That's yeah. I mean, that's really surprising to me. Mm-hmm. With that kind of quirky type of game and with the name and everything, to, to see that game do that well yep. is, is good news, right? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a big question now is what, what is Pokemon going to do for that machi- for the machine during sure. the holidays? And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like will, will parents go out and buy a new 3DS yep. for these games? And it is a year when is after. When Pokemon coming out? It is the same day as Smash Bros. for Wii okay. November 21st. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be people picking up a package deal. Yeah. Well, they are introducing the double pack here in the West, too. So mm-hmm. I guess we're going to ultimately see if it pans out for them. But relying on Pokemon and Smash, that's pretty much all they have running for 3DS right now. Fantasy Life, by the way, in the office, all I hear is a fantastic game. Justin Davis right now, for example, is playing it. He pulled me aside and talked to me for like half an hour about hmm. that thing, and it sounds awesome. Get him on I here. have yet to start. We should probably soon. Um, I have yet to start, but I'm looking forward to that. But that's not a bigger, you know, known IP, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that uh, is, has come out, has been received with solid reviews. Even on IGN, it has a pretty decent review. I think we scored it in the eights, if I'm mm-hmm. remembering right. Um, but yeah, ultimately, we're going to see if just hopefully this 3DS business, as 3DS business has slowed down and the software lineup hasn't been as amazing, right? Think about it. This year, Kirby, Yoshi, like just what was the big standout 3DS game? Yeah, you know, yeah I know. But, Until Smash Brothers, there wasn't one. But that's where I also feel like uh, Amiibo can help a little bit with uh, just the profile and reminding people of mm-hmm. these franchises, right? Like. Think about when you walk into a Toys R Us, right? Which sure. is a, still a huge retailer in the United States for for you know families and, and and kind of toy business. You walk in and the gaming section is kind of off to the side, and like you really have to you have to come in and say I'm going to buy video games in order to really walk into it and see it. But sure. you walk in, you see these giant displays for figurines, you know, usually adjacent. At, you know, like if Nintendo's playing their game right during the holidays, you will see Amiibo. And that's why I think where where parents will see, oh, this is cool. My kids loves all these characters. Maybe we need the need the new 3ds as well as the Wii U. So sure. we'll see. We'll I mean, that's I do think the the toys are amazing Trojan horses because make no mistake about it, Skylanders is a fun game, but it is not an amazing game. Skylanders yeah. is is a very simple gauntlet like concept done really really well for a for a young audience. Sure. And the fact that this is 
a billion dollar franchise shows you how important it is to for for family audience to have that visibility in the channel. Yeah. yeah. Well, and take 30-year-old IP that's instantly recognizable and that works across multiple games. The big question though is still are people going to be satisfied with what Amiibo does in Smash Brothers? Mm-hmm. And I'm not 100% sure even I am yet. Like I'm excited by it, but I can't wait to really stretch the, the, sort of what it can be and what it can do and right now I'm not entirely sure yes I've gone hands on I'm a believer up until now but I kind of wonder how that's going to get received and if Smash Brothers was the right place for it yeah. to start you know so yeah. yeah it'll be interesting to see I mean it's 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 good news that it's good news I think the the shopping season you know let, let's not kid ourselves into thinking the, the Wii U is going to unseat the PlayStation 4 or, or even the Xbox One sure. I don't I don't think you'll see it overtake um, either one of these machines on, on kind of just per unit no. sales but I think they're going to do really yeah, well but, on yeah. what they've always done well with smart bundles remember Wii Play like where mm-hmm. you bought the remote control and you got another game and boom you know yep, you're yep. spending yeah. um, I think the that's where Amiibo will really help. when that said once again Nintendo is bringing it this holiday I mean mm-hmm. in terms of Smash Bros others and in terms of pokemon same day like will they have the two best games again like last year we we said on this podcast 3d world and a link between worlds were two of the best games of last year yeah, for sure yeah so let's see how that shakes out as well anyway there you have it our financial summary break i guess down. for you yes breakdown for you and now you get to tune in for a very special interview with special guest dennis dyack about his time working on the gamecube era uh, and working with Nintendo as a whole, so yeah. And even if you're, you know, if you know um, Silicon Knights from the Eternal Darkness days, um, even if you haven't played Eternal Darkness, stay tuned because there's some interesting uh, stuff about, you know, how it was for a third party to work with Nintendo and like, you know, how they actually got into creating a Metal Gear game, you know, for a Nintendo platform. It's really, really good stuff. Absolutely. So we will be right back after the break. From IGN's offices in San Francisco, welcome to Nintendo Voice Chat for the week of October 31st. Ooh, scary. Was is is this the October version, the October 31st version or something? Yeah, I guess. Wow, that was pretty frightening. It has to be. Yeah. Is it? Is it not? Yeah. Joining me, I'm your host, Isaiah Otero. Joining me is Per Schneider. Yeah, I feel like Once some again. Like insanity effects coming on insanity, here. Insanity, yeah. you say? Yeah, yeah. No uh-huh, kidding. Uh-huh. Special guest, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Dennis Dyack from the newly formed company QE2, Quantum Entanglement Entertainment. Got nice. it. And folks may remember Dennis from a little company called Silicon Knights that knew a lot about insanity, in fact. Uh, Sanity's Requiem even uh, with <laughs> right. eternal darkness yeah very cool to have you on the show man thank you so much for for coming in absolutely my pleasure very cool so gentlemen where do we start for this very spooky special episode of nintendo voice chat it's been a while actually what's what's funny you know since since you've you haven't been here in a while but after you were here 
last time we actually got together at my house and we played a whole bunch of games. Like mm -hmm. we just hooked up a GameCube right. and an N64 and we just plopped in cartridges, kept oh. on switching out games. German style, a lot then, of beer. Yeah, and then it, <laughs> like we said, okay, let's play Eternal Darkness. And we, we really only wanted to play 30 minutes of everything, but we kind of got stuck playing and mm -hmm. you know saying mm -hmm. like, man, this game was great. Yeah, and oh. he stayed really quiet about the whole bathroom scene. Um, yeah, oh, we, we worked on that scene. The bathroom scene is one of the ones we spent the most time on per capita, I'd say, as far as the scene was probably about a minute long, but mm -hmm. we spent months on it trying to get it right. And we did little things like turn off the music. That's one of the few places in the entire game where there's no music. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's that kind of thing. When you walk into the room, you notice the music goes away. It just builds this tension, like something's mm -hmm. changed. What's changed? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to notice. You don't know what it is. And then there's that whole screaming flash that it's, it's one of the classic moments that everyone always tends to talk uh -huh. about with, with uh, Eternal Darkness. What's well, weird, too, is like I feel like you turning off the music should have tipped me off that it was no, that something too, was going to happen, but yeah. like it totally got him too, which was great. I kept on <laughs> just waiting for it. So it, it doesn't help though to tweet on social media with the other person in the room who has a cell phone and say, "Oh, I haven't told them about the bathroom." <laughs> so I look at my phone. I'm like, "Why am I being mentioned by pairs?" Oh, sitting right man. next to me. I didn't yeah. know you were gonna. I my figured you were right captivated. But, yeah. but regardless, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, first of all the developers' history in Silicon Knights, right? So yeah. you guys, your first. Uh, big game was Cyber Empires. Was that sort of your first project as a group together? Yeah, so um, Cyber Empires we did while I was doing my undergraduate in computer science. Got it. Okay. Where were you studying at the time? I was. I was still doing the degree and um, we started making it then. I I had just transitioned. I just graduated from – so my first degree is in physical education. Okay. My next one was computer science. So I started taking computer science only because I wanted to make video games. I was uh -huh. like – I want to make video games. I love this genre. I, I just I just feel I don't have the tools to do it. So I bit the bullet and put myself through computer science, and I was terrified. Uh -huh. I, I ended up doing really well in the course. And then from there, I went on to do a master's in computer science where mm -hmm. we actually formed the company. And then we sold uh, the publishing rights to uh, SSI at the time. Okay. And the funny thing about Cyber Empires is um, it won multiplayer game of the year by Computer Gaming World. There was no internet, and it was a hot seat game. Uh -huh. So you'd sit, you'd do your turns, everyone would switch turns, and then the battles would be real time between, you know, some split screen with no resolution in 16 colors. Uh -huh. And it was, <laughs> it's, it's funny when you look back at it. It's, it, for it's those, a board game on a computer, basically. Yeah, right? Essentially, Cyber Empires was Total War, you know, the Total War series. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Cyber Empires was in 1991 on okay. an Atari uh, and an Amiga. Because mm -hmm. you would capture countries, build armies, and then fight. Okay. And it was all in 2D top-down, so it wasn't 3D like to the Total War series. But, yeah, that was our first game. And so did you already, when you're, when you're studying computer science, did you already spend part of the time at home working on a game? Or yeah. Or yeah. did it work, yeah? Yeah, and we, we first, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And the main programming language at the time at the university was a programming language called Modula 2. Mm -hmm. um, so we bought a Modula 2 compiler and said, well, we're going to do this game in Modula 2. Bad idea. Didn't work. <laughs> Not good for video games. So then we had to teach ourselves C, um, and that was before C++ and C Sharp and all that. So we taught ourselves C, and then we programmed the whole thing again. Uh -huh. And then we found out that wasn't fast enough, and then I had to learn assembly language. So then we learned assembly language, and we did. So you, it was just all of these steps. And we were students. We didn't know what we were doing. We just had the love for video games. We didn't know if there was any kind of business model. What I did one year was when I was in uh, doing my master's in computer science, I flew down to the West Coast. Not having, I was just, I want to find out there's a video game industry because mm -hmm. someone's making video games and I want to find it. And I just 
made a couple calls, bumped into this one group at SSI. They saw it. They love it. They go, we, we love it. We want to do this game, and we want to do a follow-up sequel. Huh. Mm. And so that's how Fantasy Empires came into being. Got and then suddenly we had money, and we formed this company, uh-huh. and um, yeah, yeah. Silicon I started. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that was uh, so the dream was quickly realized, and it feels like uh, we heard a similar story from Julian actually, right? Where yeah. in Germany, the the same sort of attitude, where they were sort of it wasn't uh, by the way their their masters, but very much they had an interest in games. They mm-hmm. were all sort of like uh, just brainiac high schoolers who really liked coding, and were yeah. just like, man, we want to do this, and then they just. Were, but they did a little different because they were kind of a... Uh, well, they were hackers. They were hackers, yeah. They <laughs> were pretty much... Yeah, yeah. They were recompiling... Um, oh, my God. What was the game again? Was it Gradius? I can't remember. It was yeah. oh, some of those shooters. Oh, they, they were yeah. reverse engineering stuff. Yeah. yeah, but that, yeah. that was very common in that scene for yeah. those guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like those guys. They're great guys. And tech... tech their, uh, Julian's company was very much a technology company. Yeah. And um, we... When Silicon Age first started... Uh, my master's degree was in uh, a little bit in artificial intelligence and a little bit of interfaces. Got it. And so that's what we focused on at first. But then after doing Cyber Fantasy and then Dark Legions, we then mm-hmm. switched over to – when we made a game Dark Legions, it was kind of our homage to Archon. And we put – for marketing, we created these cards, these player cards. And they were really cool writing these stories about what the background of each of them were where you'd basically have these chess pieces you'd move around and they all had their little stories and their little lore. When we were creating those, I had such a good time. And I remember sitting back with some of the guys at Silicon Knights going, I'm having such a good time. Why don't we make a story-based game? And then Legacy uh, Kane was born. Which yeah. was the first classic I had played from, from your And that, from your that studio, was our first really big hit. That was um, an awesome game. And at, oh, that, at that point, so you realize basically it's not just about coding and creating cool game systems. It's also about storytelling and like kind of like creating lore and yeah you know i i know you're obviously we'll talk about eternal darkness but you're into you know science fiction and horror and all of that kind of stuff but it started there really it really started there and <clears throat> and i i guess when i started thinking about engagement theory and what makes a game important because back then there were all these people that were positive that they knew what it was like a lot of people thought it was technology back at the time id was you know their engine was unstoppable and everyone thought okay it's technology it's first person shooters that's the way you have to be and for a time they were right uh, a lot of other people were oh no it's art you look at games like mist other people were like no 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 it's all about music and and i just looked and i i just sort of sat back and went well what if it was a combination of all of these things where you combine them in the right way and, and something becomes bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started thinking about engagement theory. And that's the first time I did a talk at GDC was in 1996 about that. Wow. And we started looking at flow theory and Zigzag Mahoy. And you know, I, I'm, I'm big into uh, collaborations with universities and, and, you know, modern psychology theory. And there needs to be a basis for gameplay on what a player is going to do and what are we going to use as a foundation? Because right now, even for game designers now, there's still not a body of theory that they can work from. Right. And um, so back then is when I first started thinking about it. And that defined really what I think video games should be and where they should go. And now with QE2 and where we're going, we're com- combining even more medium now, more mediums now. And what they know in film and television, the production value and the script writing is so, frankly, still much, much higher than video games. Mm-hmm. And combining that with the interactive nature of video games now, it's funny because you see my partners looking around here. They're just sort of like, what is going on in this place? <laughs> they come they, from the, to, for, to let everybody in on it, they come from the movie space, right? Right, in the, films uh, and television. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, we just finished doing some uh, Metal Gear Solid podcasts and, mm. and, and they were like, okay, so you were talking while you were playing the game? I was like, yep, yep, <laughs> very common. Just and, watch your kids. And, and, do it all the time. And they're, just, and they're like, okay. 
okay. <laughs> we uh, got, yeah. You know, and and so these spaces don't talk to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you go, if you talk to people from film and television, they really don't know what the video game space is like. Yeah. yeah. And so, f- and the same, frankly, with me, I don't know when I'm learning so much about film and television, talking with these guys and seeing how that business works. The idea of bringing those together, because we are talking about convergence now. Mm-hmm. You when you see, um, when you see television becoming so big. It's really following along the analogy of commoditization and <coughs> services where you get microtransactions. Like TV is essentially an eight-hour – like if you look at <laughs> True Detective, which I love. Yeah, yeah good It's show. an eight-hour movie. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really servicing people over a long period of time. through. That's so right. that's what's happening in that industry, and it's mm-hmm. paralleling our industry. Yeah. So let's bring them all together. That's the idea. So it's all these kind of things that I get really, really excited about. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's real. I mean, it's obviously really exciting stuff, and you know, I, I I think we all agree that games are still not at the level of true detective storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are yeah. very few examples in gaming where you're you're getting a story that holds up to the very end, where the ending feels like it was planned for, and the emotional impact is is as big yeah, as and, it can and get. And that's kind of where games sort of fall short in a lot of cases, where yeah. it's always the buildup is fantastic, and then the end is completely not in line. But the great thing is, it's coming. Yeah, and this is all coming. This convergence is coming, yeah. and then that's not even talking about the. I, I don't know what to call it. The I used to I used to call it mobile space, but I don't think it's called the mobile space mm-hmm. anymore. But you've got the tablets and all of these guys that the traditional gaming guys look at them and they're kind of like alien. Like, what are they mm-hmm. doing? But you know, they're doing mm-hmm. good stuff. But no one knows what the secret of success is. All of that's going to come together mm-hmm. in such a way where. Um, and I, I hopefully we'll be able to make some serious inroads, but there's going to be a time when someone's going to say, okay, this is how we do all of this stuff. This is how we bring all this great talent together, and we're going to make something that's truly a watershed movement for entertainment. And yeah. it's ex- exciting, it's exciting time. Definitely. Sure. One, I wanted to go back just to Legacy of Kane for a second because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners will probably know the name not from your original game but from Soul Reaver, right? Yeah. Which yeah. was how do you – like? So you didn't own you you didn't have ownership of the Legacy of Kane franchise, and then it kind of took on a life of its own and a different developer made a really interesting game. But it's well, like, so the, how did that happen? Well, it's it's a funny story. So is it um, really funny or is it irritating? <laughs> well, it's a bit of both, really. I can laugh about it now. I'll be able to laugh about everything. So I, I guess I'm one of those I'm one of those developers that's been privileged to have some very very high highs and some very very deep lows. Right. And you know, um, looking through all of the past. Uh, the one thing that I can say moving forward is that I've learned a lot. And I certainly learned a lot from that experience. So Legacy of Kane, uh, we developed and created uh, entirely at Silicon Knights. Okay. And the actual concept of the Soul Reaver um, was a concept from Two Human. Mm-hmm. It was actually a weapon in Two Human that I brought over. I liked the concept so much, I actually put it in Legacy of Kane. I wrote in. So for those who don't know, I wrote a lot of the script for Legacy of Kane. I, I've yeah. written a lot of stuff on all of our games. And... Um, what happened is uh, basically Crystal Dynamics at the time, who was the publisher, mm-hmm. um, ran out of venture and became a developer mm-hmm. and wanted to develop the series on their own. But we had the rights for that. And we got into a big fight. Uh-huh. And there was a litigation. And it ended up settling. And it all worked out fine. 
Um, and they went on to get bought out by Eidos and continue the Legacy of Kane series. Yeah, but we right. did create Legacy of Kane and Nosgoth and yeah. all of that. That's so right. that that's the story. So it's not it's not that bad. It's just but I've it, got worse stories. In hindsight, but it's like <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. In hindsight, though, is it kind of a lesson for young, like budding game designers and developers to to secure the IP, like to to make sure that they own a piece of it, or is it just it's, is it so different now? It's very different because self publishing is becoming such a big thing, yeah. and yeah, mm-hmm. owning the IP is very very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but without being able to self-publish it, that's almost never going to be the case. So, so the industry that Silicon Knights used to be in, um, I don't know if it even exists anymore where you basically get money from a publisher and then you publish the product and you get a percentage of the royalties. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think deals like that are be even being made anymore. They've taken it all internally, which is also a, that business model, the AAA models under siege right now too, is hard to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Owning the IP when you self-publish, it's just a given these days because you're self-funding it anyway. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't you own the IP? So always try to keep the IP for sure. Um, and, you know, it's funny because the Soul Reaver idea moves – it's got a lot to do with angels and and um, it's it's not really where we ever would have taken the series. And it's not the same – I know there's a lot of people like it and I, I'm not I'm – not, I'm not criticizing it at all. I'm mm-hmm. just saying that's not where we. It's a different taken. direction. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah. A definitely completely different direction than we were going with it. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously we never experienced that that kind of connection to the franchise, right? Like in your head, you know where you wanted Kane to go, and oh. then here comes this completely different game, right? Like I actually had a five-story arc planned out for the whole thing, where yeah. it's just like. Um, talking about what the pillars of Nosgoth were really for, mm-hmm. what how they got there, and there's all that backstory that never really got explored as, gotcha. as far as I as far as I saw in the series. And they, you know, they took it in their own direction. And now there's a multiplayer game out there. What I tried at E3 actually, and that's again something totally different. I never. Yeah. Not, Last thing I ever would have done. But now you know you're you've got a company that uh, you know creates movies, television, and games entertainment. You could dig up some of the old concepts, and there'll be the legacy of Bane. Legacy show, of Bane. Maybe, oh, I don't know about that. But but certainly you can you can learn you can learn from from all of the things that you've done. And and one of the things. So as an example, you look at you look at Eidos and and which is now part of Square, I think. Mm-hmm. Square Enix. Um, and and there's no reason why we couldn't work with those guys right. in the future to talk about you know, films, television. I don't have no idea what they're doing with Legacy of Kane, But mm-hmm. um, certainly I can say with extreme confidence that no one knows Legacy of Kane like we do, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because I was the original creator. And uh, if they're looking to restart that franchise, you know, and, and turn it into something that would be truly unique and mm-hmm. look at it from different mediums and do that, that would be a great idea. Sure. And, and we're not talking right, right. now. I don't want to give you oh, that no, impression. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. but it's just, yeah, it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. First on IGN. But, um, um, so, so, then, so there was quite a bit of time between Blood Omen, Legacy of Kane, and Eternal Darkness. Do you yeah. feel... Um, so, sort of, what was going through your mind with Eternal Darkness and the first pitch for that? Like, what, sort of, where was Silicon Knights? I'm assuming this was post, the, you know, the litigation with yeah, it was. Crystal D. Yeah, it it, it, it um, so Eternal Darkness didn't get pitched. We were pitching another game entirely. Hmm. And too human. Nope. No, it was a different game. Okay. Uh, I actually never talked about it. I don't okay. probably shouldn't at this point. But it is a totally different game um, based upon different things. And we I, there's so many different game concepts in my head. But I remember, so right at the time before I was flying down to pitch Nintendo this game, 
I had stayed up because this is what you do when you're young and you don't think. Um, and I was younger back then and not as, not as, I guess, well, not as careful, not as careful. And uh, I'd like to think I'm more careful these days. Um, and, uh, some would argue, um, the, I stayed up all night playing Resident Evil 2. I yep. finished the whole thing. I stayed up for three days in a row before I flew down to Nintendo to pitch. And that's a, like, it's for anyone who doesn't know, it's a five and a half hour flight, Seattle from Toronto. And I was completely burnt out. I sat down with a producer at the time uh, from Nintendo, who was Henry Searchy, who we later worked together really closely. And he looked at me and goes, you look tired. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I just played Resident Evil 2 and it was awesome. <laughs> and he's like, I know. And he's like, so we started talking about all this stuff. And, 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 and I just looked at him and I said, you know, that's a damn good game. I would love to make a game like that. And he mm-hmm. goes, you should make a game like that. And he goes, can you think of a pitch? And I said, yeah. Well, I, I've got this idea that's Lovecraftian, and we wouldn't want to do it like Resident Evil because they're good enough at it now, and Nintendo would never take a copycat game anyway. Mm-hmm. They would never want to do it. Mm-hmm. But I said, this is what I would do, and I started talking about Babylon 5 and how it's all <laughs> structured around story rather uh-huh. than main characters, how there'd be characters over time. And he goes, oh, let's talk about this some more. So we started talking about mm-hmm. it, and we pitched it, and they – Boom, it happened. But but how, like, when I, when I think going to Nintendo and pitching a game, like, Resident Evil would have been the last thing to pitch to them. You know, at, at the time, it wasn't, like, it was, directionally, it, you know. So, so at the time, Nintendo was looking at expanding their demographics. Okay. And they were mm-hmm. talking to us because we did serious content. We were a violent video game creator. Like, uh, Legacy Kane was not, you know, was not par for the course. Back then, right. when we created Legacy of Cain, people were like, you're creating a vampire game? What? And the vampire is evil and everyone wants to kill him? That doesn't... That's like an anti-hero. And we're like, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And and in this, when we pitched Eternal Darkness, they were looking at it going, everyone dies. And I go, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, but that's sad. And I'm like, yes. People die. They're real heroes. Mm-hmm. And, and it took a long time to digest this stuff um, because... It wasn't what they were used to, but that's why they wanted to go in that direction because right. they wanted something different. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people criticize Nintendo. I personally love Nintendo because they take a lot of risks and they're willing to go into areas that they're uncomfortable with. And certainly Eternal Darkness, they had never seen anything like it. Everything before then had been solely character-based games. This was a plot-based game, an environment-based game, where you played multiple characters over time. Um, where some characters you played only for 20 minutes and they died. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Centurion, uh, Pius Augustus, was like five minutes and then boom, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember... Spoilers. Yeah, for Just those who haven't played. But, <laughs> and, and it's... I remember when we did the Paul Luther scene where you have that really long level. It's like, that's one of the longest levels in the game. You go through the cathedral and then you see... The Greater Guardian. Is that the guy who deteriorates as he as he? No, no, the, that's no. Anthony. That's, that's Anthony. Anthony. He's okay. a zombie. He's already dead from who, when it starts. Man, it's, that, it's, that was a grueling one. Yeah, that yeah. one. That one. The people. But the interesting thing about that is, no one knew you were more. You could. You couldn't die. You just yeah. grow back. Mm-hmm. And but no, this is the one where you play the priest. Oh, the priest. Okay. Right. Yeah. And and you go right to the end where you think you have this big boss fight and you just get squashed, <laughs> and it broke every <laughs> single expectation of the gamer because you're at that point you're ready for this boss fight and then when we killed i remember sitting down with uh, a lot of the game designers from nintendo and we showed them that and they just they were just looking at us like what well, that's it and i go that is it <laughs> and uh they were like oh dennis i don't know i don't know and but but they were great they they kept it in and they helped us polish uh a lot of stuff they really helped us with the boss fights a lot we learned a ton and 
it was those kind of moments <laughs> that really I, I remember the relationship. And some of the best moments were talking about the insanity effects, like the, the leading of the save game. Mm-hmm. We, Mr. Miyamoto, myself, a lot of the executive producers from Nintendo had long discussions, and they had really good points. They're like, people could look at this, get really angry, throw their GameCube against the wall, break it, and it would be our fault because we're fooling them into thinking that their game has been deleted. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think we should do it. <laughs> how did, how, but so how, how did, did you the, swing how did that? You how swing did you convince that? them? Yeah. I, I, I just said, I said it's different. It's, I think it's entertaining. I think we should take the chance. And it was ultimately their decision, and they they did it. That was hard because back then, the consoles were all about if there's anything wrong with this console, we guarantee it. You know, customer service is a really really high, yeah, especially Nintendo. with Nintendo. Nintendo, yeah. it's high. I would say out of all the third parties. Uh, they care about their hardware more than anything. You can run. I remember throwing my GameCube against the wall a couple times and it not breaking. You know, it is a solid, solid piece of machinery. And they they were ready to bite the bullet on extra customer service calls. They're like, let's mm-hmm. just do it. Let's do this thing. It's going to be different. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, uh, really, <laughs> there were some crazy, crazy times with that game. And uh, you know, it's it it really has some good memories. And I think. I think that it really was set apart because Nintendo, when when we were working together on that that project, um, they really had a chance to, you know, work with us in a in a really different way. Where I don't think they had a chance to work with other developers that way. Yeah. You know, clearly, uh, you know, from North America, and you know, I, I started learning Japanese. I wanted to communicate, so I actually, I might really rusty now, but I actually got really good at speaking Japanese. Because and I started getting lessons like in the morning, like mm-hmm. four or five times a week, because I wanted to communicate so much. I just when you have ideas about when you're creative and you want to talk about your ideas, mm-hmm. like I'm hyper now and I'm talking yeah. with my hands. Imagine what it's like when they don't speak the language and you have to wait for a translator. Yeah, oh, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, even in interviews now, where I'm just like, I would love to say something else, but he's still saying what I said yeah, just a yeah. second ago. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, you just sit there and and so. Um, it's a very special kind of meeting. For yeah, folks oh, they're not, very yeah. hard. They're yeah. hard. It takes a lot of patience, and you get really worn out by them. Mm-hmm. And um, but we did, we did, we created some magic there. And um, I, I just, I'll never forget some of those days. I'll never forget some of the things that we did, and some of the things that we talked about, some of the laughs that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one of the most interesting conversations, and I, I assume not a lot of people know this now, but is when we were almost finished the N64 version. We are running in high resolution without the extra memory pack. Yep. And there was a unilateral decision to stop making games for that console, and we reset it for the GameCube. That was hard wow. to tell the team. Yeah. Because the game looked amazing. Yeah. And that's, that's where I was just talking to Fran outside. That's I saw like, it running, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's where Fran and I first met. And, um, and there were so many questions like, why did it get delayed and blah, blah, blah. And it was just a decision of... We're moving to the GameCube. Timings. Well, uh, Con- Conker's Bad Fur Day was the last one to be released, and that was it. And, and, it, and it tanked, right? I mean, in, hi- in hindsight, certainly the right decision to move to the next console, right? Like, Conker arguably would have been a bigger game had it not been at the very tail end of the N64. Well, you had the tail end effect, and then you had the cost of the cartridges. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it was that. a, yeah, it was an economic move. And I don't, not necessarily because of how Conker did, but where they saw the console going, yeah, mm-hmm. it was starting to fall off. Yeah, and and so for us, 
we had done all this cool technology, like getting that thing to run in 640 by 480 without that extra memory cartridge. It's really hard to do that, actually, mm-hmm. especially with collisions and stuff. You need, you need to have all kinds of 3D data. And we did it. And I remember when we showed everyone from Nintendo the first time we were running in high res, they actually m- walked over to see if there was a memory card in the de- debug kit. <laughs> did they really? Yeah, because no one had done it before. Probably Dean Spear was there with Turok a couple of minutes earlier and showed him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it was funny because we actually hand-coded, like, in code some of the collision data to get that work mm-hmm. because there was such a restricted amount of RAM. But it saved so much money if you did that. Wow. Yeah. So the idea was this is going to be a good game and it's not going to cost that much to manufacture. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you just look at the long, long run. It's just like... Well, it's even cheaper to go to the N60, obviously, the GameCube. GameCube. And then we redid the entire engine and started over. Did it have any sort of negative impact on the game at all? Sort of having to start over, essentially? Uh, um, I don't think so. I think there was a drag on the team Mm -hmm. for at the first little bit. There was a real big morale hit because we were doing great. It was like Mm -hmm. you're going to be on time. And, um, you know, Eternal Darkness suffered from... (laughs) It seems that we run into these roadblocks that you just don't expect, and I, I, I seem to be uh, a gravitator towards these. <laughs> so we got the N64 version, and then just before we were about to release the GameCube version, which had some Arabic content, um, uh, 9-11 happens. Oh, that's um, right. George, uh, George W. Bush, President Bush, says he's going to start a new crusade, and we have crusaders in our game. And we're just like, oh, uh, no. And this is not anyone's fault, which right. is like, I'm just sitting back going, what are we going to do? And and this is at the time when anthrax is going through the mail. People are freaking yeah. out. We flew to Japan, um, and the game almost got canceled right there because we had some Arabic content. And it, was po- it wasn't negative Arabic content. It actually showed the crusader in a, a bad light. He right. wasn't a good person. Yeah. Um, we flew over there and we rewrote a quarter of the game and got it out six months later. And everyone blamed us for being late. It was like, oh, Silicon Knights is late again. And I was like, mm. no. we couldn't say anything. No. Um, but um, I think the game actually got a little bit better from that too because we, we had a chance. We had some crisis management on storytelling. But at the same time, we were able to hone a few more game mechanics and really think about the sanity effects more, put in a few more sanity effects. Um, and uh, again, Nintendo stood up to the plate and said, no, we're going to do this game. This is a good game. And, you know, we wanted to make sure there was nothing offensive to anyone, and which, is, which was really a tightrope at the time. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was pretty scary out there. When we flew down to Japan that time, it was about probably about a month after 9-11, return flight from New York to Kyoto was $99, and the plane was empty. No one was mm-hmm. getting on a plane then. Yeah, and it was a scary time to fly. Yeah, and I yeah. can imagine. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was very, very different. And we went down there and under the pressure of probably I knew at the time it was the best game I'd created in my life, and it was about to get canceled because of something that was completely out of my Man. control. Sure. And um, but we we saved it, and and it, I'm glad it made it out. And it came out, and I I mean I feel like Eternal Darkness is one of those games where. If you go in knowing nothing, you will have an amazing experience. Like, you know, now and people listening to this podcast now go back and play the game. They know kind of like the setup, right? That you're playing through these characters who are not long for this world. And they know that there are sanity effects. Like, yeah. even, But even though even though we knew all that when we were playing, like he got you once too. You thought the game was glitching out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it did. Uh, more than once, actually. And I was actually going to ask <clears throat> about that. Sort of what provoked your your desire to kind of mess with the player. Because, I mean, we'd seen sort of pokes and nods at the at the fourth wall in games, but this was sort of a different we took, shift. We took it to the end, actually, actually yeah. patented the idea um, with Nintendo. You know, so the idea was, this goes all back to um, violence in video games. 
So at the time, I was I was part of uh, a group within the IGDA looking at violence in video games because there was a it was a lot of attacks on video games saying violent video games are creating violent behavior. So I was part of the group that looked through all the studies, and we looked through all the studies, and there was nothing that had any kind of showed any kind of correlation or evidence that there's anything substantial at all. There's mm-hmm. some minor stuff, but really there's nothing out there. There's still no studies that show this because there isn't there hasn't been anything. And so it became, so we reported back and were basically like, this is all political. This is not, this doesn't seem real. And, and they're like, okay. And it, it kept going, it kept going. So after this was, and so I got frustrated by it personally. And I was like, okay, well, if they're accusing us of making games that's messing with people's heads, let's make a game that tries to mess with people's heads. Mm-hmm. So that's why we created them. We're going to screw with everyone as much as we can. Was, and so we, mm. we, went, we went and said, let's do these sanity effects. Let's try to frustrate people. Let's see what happens. And, yeah. and it was all within, you know, a Lovecraft perspective of sanity. So it makes right. sense thematically with the game. You know, a lot of Lovecraft homages in Eternal Dark. I'm a huge, huge Lovecraft fan. And um, I'm a big believer in cosmic horror and a lot of the stuff that he's done in Clive Barker and a lot of the those those type of horrors and um that's where it all came from and it was you know really a reaction to the environment at the time yeah, yeah. were there any sort of sanity effects that were uh, too hot for gamecube or just like uh we shouldn't do that any any ideas that just we, didn't we pan ended up out doing them all um <laughs> some of them <laughs> it's funny because when we went over to do um to human with microsoft after they're like blue screen of death huh pretty funny <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're pretty funny, Dennis. What I'm, that? Like, I'm like, yeah, 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 I am. And it's just kind of like, what do you do? You can't apologize for yeah, it. Yeah, I, I can't, and I can apologize for it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of stuff in it. And did, did you just tell the team, hey, come up with these? Like, everybody yeah, what's just that pitch think meeting of something. How did you that, do so that, that? that? Those are one of the most fun pitch meetings. And if you look at Shadow of the Eternals, we're doing the same thing. It's one of the most popular forms. What are some of the sanity effects you want to do? Yeah, people went crazy with it. And, uh, uh, um, Gina, who's a programmer at the time, her and I sat down and c- put them all together and really created them. My personal favorite is the leading of the save game. That was the one I yeah. came up with that one. And I, I, I remember sitting down and programming how slow that meter went. It's got to be like really slow. You got You don't want it to go fast. And uh, we did focus testing actually with that. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Dr. John Mitter, is a psychologist. We actually, Nintendo gave us the leeway um, to sit down and focus test some of these things. So we sat in the room and we watched people, what would happen with, when the TV volume gets turned down. And we were like, wow, this stuff is really working. Yeah. And back then with TVs, most of the you know displays were almost the same. With all Now they're all wildly different. Yeah. But back then, you know, that green, that green bar that thing, green right? bar thing was Everybody universal pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So we could get away with it. But, but think about it today, though. You have a new canvas. Everybody, you know, everybody either has an iPhone or an Android I phone. Know. They all make the same buzzing nose when, right. noise when it's muted and somebody mm-hmm. calls you. Or And a lot of them have the same notification for text messages. So you can really screw with people that way nowadays, you know? Social media, yeah. so, social media is untapped territory <laughs> for sanity effects. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can do, um, especially if they give you permission to go through the data. You like a lot of those Oh, uh, you could do so much fun you stuff. It, it would be... It would be really fun to do, and uh, you know, those are those are some of the things I look forward to in the future with some yeah. of the new stuff we're doing. Yep. Okay. So, so then from there, uh, actually, let's before we go any further, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about the next interesting chapter in Silicon Knights GameCube history, which is Metal Gear Solid: The Twin Snakes. More when we return. 
Welcome back. Jose Otero here with Per Schneider and Dennis Dyack, very special guest. So, Dennis, uh, I know that Metal Gear Solid, the Twin Snakes, is probably one of the most substantial remakes I've seen of any franchise. And it came out in 2004, but obviously this wasn't uh, pitched in 2003. Like, when, when did this happen? How did this meeting take place where Silicon Knights gets picked? It's funny. It's very similar to the Eternal Darkness pitch. It was a game that I had no idea we were going to do until I left Nintendo. So we had just finished Eternal Darkness, and uh, I'd flown down there. I remember it was in the summer. It was really, really hot. And my, my, my birthday is in July, and my birthday was actually in Japan. And I was sitting down at the table thinking about our next pitch and what, what game we were going to do with Nintendo. And we had, we had some ideas lined up, and I was getting ready. And we're in the cafeteria. Nintendo's got this cafeteria where I sat down and, and just had my, my little box of, um, like, sushi and stuff that I was eating. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Miyamoto came down and sat beside me, and I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> and, and then I was like, and we talked a little bit, and Mr. Miyamoto speaks good English. And then Mr. Iwata sits down, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> What's going on? This was still Hal Labs Iwata, not running the company Iwata at that time, or it was, was he? It was no. Well, this is two thousand. What? Two, no, they, no. Then no, he was no, already no. in he, charge. He, yeah. was, he was the president. Okay, yeah. Yeah. He, was the president. Yeah. he was selected. He was. Uh, he was the one. Uh, Mr. Iwata was the one that came down to Silicon Knights. He was the first person to visit Silicon Knights from Japan and recommended oh, gotcha. we become a second part. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and we were, we we had some paintball and some some uh, air air air. Oh, in Canada, you had in Canada. Uh, you yeah. shot Iwata. Ice wine. We we were playing. We had some fun times. It was good. Ice wine, ice wine, and oh, ice wine. Yeah, yeah. Ice. I'm a huge. Well, you know. Niagara area is some mm-hmm. of the best ice wine in the world. That's right. He breaks and out. He's got like a little flask of Iniskiling. I should have brought. I should have brought some. I should have brought some, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't this mm-hmm. time. Um, if you guys are ever in the area, come on down, and we'll we'll, we'll teach you some good ice wine. And um, <laughs> so they sit down, and I, I just sort of sat back, and I'm like, oh, what's going on? And so Mr. Miyamoto looks at me, and he goes, Dennis, how would you like to do a Metal Gear game? <laughs> and I sat back, and I was totally shocked. Absolutely I, shocked. I think you went. Woo! Well, I, yeah, I was just kind of like, what? I, I Actually, my response was, I didn't even answer the question. I just said, Mr. Miyamoto, how's that even possible? That's a Konami game. And, and, then, and then, but he was waiting for that. And he goes, yes. And I was just talking to Mr. Kojima, and we've been talking for a while, and we would love to do a Metal Gear game on the Nintendo system, but he's too busy with Metal Gear 3. And that was the conversation we just had. And, and he said, I wish we could do it, but we just don't have the manpower. And Mr. Mimo said, but then I had this idea, Dennis, that you could be the manpower. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was like, really? And, and he goes, yes. Would you be interested? And I went, yes. He goes, good, because we're going to get on the bullet train and we're going to go down there tomorrow. <laughs> wow. And so I went wow. to Japan for my birthday, which I was pitching all these products, and Silicon Ice was waiting for me to come back. I came back home. So we got we were in Tokyo like the next day. We had this big meeting, and no one from Nintendo or Konami had met each other before. So this was a big deal. And I'm sitting here just, you know, kind of, frankly, a lot younger, really appreciating, like, Mr. Yamauchi's there. Like, everyone's mm-hmm. there. And, um, oh, sorry, Mr. Yamauchi was not there. He was, he was there in the cafeteria that day where I met him. I got a picture with him, actually. Wow. So that was where he was saying goodbye to everyone after he retired. Okay. Um, but um, they, they were, everyone was all meeting and talking uh, in this meeting about how to, um, 
how we're going to do this this product, and everyone was nervous. I, I don't know if Mr. Miyamoto was nervous or Mr. Rowe, but everyone. He's he's he's, yeah, he's, he's pretty, a cool cat. He anyway, never gets I nervous. Was sitting, I was just sitting there. It was just like I remember one of the translators at the end of that meeting goes, "Can you believe how much power was in this room?" I was like, "Dude, I, I, I'm just happy to be here." <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so the deal was done in that, and I flew back home, and people go, "So what game are we doing?" I go, "Metal Gear Solid," and they're like, "What?" <laughs> and then 10 days later, I took, like, 25 people to Tokyo, and we flew down, and we met with the Konami team, and we just sucked in everything we could Metal Gear, came back, and the project started. Was there apprehension that you'd do a remake, or did people Terrified. just say... <gasps> Terrified. Terrified. Yeah. Because it was the first game we'd ever created that wasn't our own content. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we're going to be working with this big movie uh, director... Kinemura-san, who I loved his movies. I loved Versus. And yeah. it just so happened that I watched... He directed the cutscenes, right? In, yeah, in he, yeah. Just yeah. for people who haven't played it. Yeah, so he, he, did, he directed the cutscenes. We implemented and put the cutscenes in the game. And I had literally, because I'm a huge fan of Japanese horror, and the fact that it was Samurais versus Ninjas, or Samurais versus Zombies in Versus, I just loved that movie. Yeah. And suddenly, I'm meeting the director of this movie <laughs> I just watched like a month ago. And I'm just like, this is his... And he speaks perfect English really? with an Australian accent. What? <laughs> because he learned... Yeah, he learned he learned to speak English in Australia. <laughs> That's so, awesome. yeah. And, um, you know, he's talking and finally... After he was talking, I go, your English is amazing. And he goes, yes. And he goes, you're probably wondering about my accent. I go, yes. And he goes, well, I learned English in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, that mm -hmm. makes sense. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so we got all together and we did all this stuff. And I w we were terrified. I was terrified at the stuff that he was doing from two levels. One, um, on the cutscenes, they were very, very production value, extremely high. Yeah. We had In Eternal Darkness, we hadn't come close to anything that he was like flips and jumping on missiles. And I was like... Huh. How's that going to work? And then the other thing, how the Metal Gear fans going to respond? Because mm -hmm. until then, it was kind of more realistic. It was a little more grounded. It was more yeah, grounded. Yeah. And this was kind of like a lot of wire work and a lot of like crazy, I would say, you know, martial arts type of cinemas. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know how we we're going to put them together. I didn't, I, we didn't know how the engine worked. We didn't know how the AI worked. And we had to combine Metal Gear 1 with Metal Gear 2 gameplay. We had to combine our engine running on the GameCube with Konami's engine running on the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. It was – and we had, a, we had to get it done fast. That's quite the patchwork quilt yeah. you have going there. Yeah, it uh, was it was nuts, but it was fun. It was really different. And so some it's it's kind of you know as someone who's played the Metal Gear games over over the years, right? Like you kind of forget which game introduced what, but it was you know it wasn't um, you you actually had the ability to look in the first person in this game, and you could go time. into the you could go into the lockers, right? Which you yeah. couldn't do in the original one, That's right? right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. No, so a lot of guys, ideas from two sort of married into the original. We had to structure. go through every single environment and say, with the Metal Gear Two game mechanics, where you could go first person, where you can go in the lockers, does this room work anymore? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We went step by step, we would went through everything. Well, even like searching clear routines, which was a big thing in two, right? Where they would sort of look through a room, and be like clear, and they would signal to each other. Like there was mm -hmm. a lot more. Um, like AI had had sort of changed a lot between Metal Gear Solid One and yeah. and the second one on, on PlayStation, and you guys sort of inherited trying to make that work between both, which was just like what? Like it was, it was hard. It was hard to imagine. But it was it was fun though. It was fun, and it was very very different. And um, 
you know, one of the things we worked really long hours and we, we blew off a lot of steam. One of the things that we did that was, you know, pretty fun is we played Counter-Strike with, the, with Kojima's team oh, yeah. uh, during Christmas. <laughs> we had a tournament. But we, we, we had the, uh, the ping advantage. And back then, uh, th- we tried to set up the servers in Hawaii and it's still, we, had still, <laughs> we had too big of an advantage from Japan. Mm-hmm. And so we were winning all the time. So after a while, they just started building these pyramids as we shot them. They just, they stopped playing. I, it, was, it wasn't fair, but, uh, you know, and that was back in the day when, Metal, uh, not Metal Gear, when uh, Counter-Strike, I don't even think it was Counter-Strike 1.0. I think mm-hmm. it was like Beta 3 at the uh-huh. time. I was a huge fan of Counter-Strike for the longest time. So, so, you, I, awesome. I, so I would imagine then you had like full access to both Kojima or at least most of that team's work. Like what, what, oh, yeah. what sort of... What were some of your takeaways from that? I mean, you basically peeked behind behind the curtain, like I guess deeper than any foreigner had on Metal Gear at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah for in sure. the making of Metal Gear, I mean, right? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it was a mystery how they even d- did some of the things that they did, and, and it came down to um, they are really, really talented and they work really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was going to be some like magic technology or like when it came to clearing the rooms and stuff, all the AI, but it, it wasn't. It was just hard work. And if you look at the models. They would do models over and over and over again until they were just right. Or they would build a specific model for a specific shot. Things I'd never thought about doing yeah. for a game. When we did Eternal Darkness, we had the one model built, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. We used it for every cutscene, where they would have different models built for different cutscenes if, if the polygons didn't quite work and bend the right way for a certain scene. I had never thought about doing That's more of a movie um, set production idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why that stuff looks so good. And nowadays... You can build models that do look good from all angles, but back then you were limited in polygons. It was eye-opening. It was it was it was just like wow. Uh, you learn to see how they do things, and um, it it was it was it was it was different. It was but, different. So for this game, though, like you, you know, you see games like The Last of Us. Uh, uh, you know, a special edition comes out that runs in HD. You know, versus the last one or, or looks better. Um, how um, both of them run in HD, right? Um, how how do you start with a game like that? That is so. I mean, is very old, right? Like the engine and everything is definitely a lot older than what the GameCube come crank, cranks out. Do you keep like the core frame rate, r- framework of the game, and then you build on top of it, or do you rewrite a lot of we stuff? We wrote it. We wrote it from scratch. Okay. Um, and and but know, how do you get the movement and the feel right then when you do that? A lot of hard work. That was the first. The first. The first sort of major milestone was getting the. Heliport, heliport working, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, getting the movement to feel right, and we went through a lot of iterations, um, and it's it really was a combination of GameCube technology meets, um, you know, looking at what they did in the PlayStation, and because you, can't, you the code you just can't copy over mm-hmm. because it's it won't work. Right. So you have to look at the code, see what they did, and say, okay, how are we going to get this run on the GameCube? And that's essentially what you do. And we had a running engine from Eternal Darkness, so it was mm-hmm. really a combination of all that. And then we'd done some research and development for stuff we're working on in the future, and we sort of combined it all. Um, but the other thing that you're, you guys touched upon earlier that was a big deal in, in the making of this thing, and I, I touched upon it earlier in the podcast, is Nintendo just doesn't want to do a straight translation ever. Mm-hmm. They just looked at it and go, we just can't do a reboot. Right, and mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, it's there's other people who can do it better than we can. They're like, right, we need to create something totally new. Mm-hmm. We need to, you to do something that's more than just a remake. So we wanted to give the Nintendo fans something that was really different. Why we combined both gameplay from one and two, and why those cutscenes were totally redone because it was meant to be a different experience. Sure. Yeah. And I, 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 I can't think of another 
another remake that's been that extensive still there's very few anyway none come yeah. to mind so quickly that was that was a that was like a lot of stuff well and it was back in a time too where the generational leap was significant yeah. like you went from the early playstation and what polygons were doing then versus you know playstation 2 uh xbox and the gamecube era like yeah night and day like visually huge difference whereas now we don't really notice as much of a difference at least at first, sometimes right. we go back and look at something on PlayStation 3 or 360 and go, oh, my God, it looked like that. Um, well, but it's not huge compared to, you know, what, what I'm thinking of back then from 1998 and whatnot. For sure. And your brain fills in the rest, too, right? Like when you Nostalgia. When, Absolutely. Like when I think of, of the original Metal Gear, like I can't help but think of the 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 snake model from Twin Snakes or two, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And then you go back, you're like, oh, my God, he didn't have fingers, right? Like yeah. he, yeah. he just had these yeah, little like blocks. These and Two black spots. Yeah, like. <laughs> Yeah, was like, like shadows on his yeah. face. And, so let me ask yeah. you this. Were you, uh, as, as a Western developer, did you ever push back towards them a little bit and say, hey, guys, you know, as far as controller and control improvements, can we can we change anything? Because oh, yeah. at the time, Metal Gear Solid, like with 2 especially, you started to have to develop a very specific finger geometry <laughs> and finger skills just to do very simple tasks. Like was there any room in the discussion or did they adamantly push back? Oh, no, 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 no. There, there, so first of all, uh, there was a lot of discussion at all times. And it was really a strategic decision of it's – the more you change, the longer the development process is going to take. So it's, it. it's also, you know, so what our suggestions would be would be limited by how much time we had to get the game done. That's right. And so um, would we have liked to suggested a lot of change? I think Konami and, you know, uh, everyone, like Kojima-san, his team, everybody would have liked to do more change. But then we're looking at a three-year project, and at that point you're like, why were we making this? Why don't we just do something up, ground up? something new from the ground up yeah. which those discussions happened a few times too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know when talking about hey I'd love to do a collaboration with Kojima sometime in the future back I don't know if you guys remember those conversations back when we were working on Metal Gear mm -hmm. like next time we did something we'd want to do something original um, and those those are the kind of things that it's just really hard to you know, retrospectives 2020, and, and you can look at something and criticize, say, I, I really wish we could have done these things better. Like, for me, Eternal Darkness, I look back, and the fact that the magic system, by running around the circle, the magic would come back, That's that was my most hated thing about that game. Mm. I really don't like that economy of, of the magic and the sanity and, and the health. And we had ideas. We had more ideas for it. It's just time. Yeah. And, you know, you just have to release it. And so Metal Gear and, and all projects suffer from the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's never finished. It's just released. And you do the best you can with it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. No, it absolutely does. No, even even in our business, you know, sometimes there's just something you have to kind of put out because yeah. it's time, right? Well, we call it the minimum viable product. <laughs> Is that what we call it? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you create something MVP. better than that. It's an than MVP. The MVP. You got That's the MVP. It. Yeah. You are the MVP. So okay. it makes you feel almost proud. Uh -huh. So then, uh, so then, post Twin Snakes, um, you know, were were you guys thinking at all of continuing work on GameCube or? At that yeah. time was when you yeah. had your heart set on to human. Is that yeah. sort of yeah. what was going on? Yeah, and well, that's you know. So we we thought about to human, and really, what started to happen then is um, a lot of people think it was a big mystery. We've talked about it openly, and I remember back when Matt was here, we talked about mm -hmm. it. Uh, Nintendo started really going towards um, smaller uh, party like games, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and. As much as we got along together, and we got along together great, 
it's not the kind of games that I made, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to make a party game. And, and, and I, I'm a big believer in if you're being true to your partners and being true to yourself, you got to create stuff that you love. And I had a hard time find, feeling how do we fit into that universe anymore? Because, you know, uh, everyone was talking at the time from Nintendo, you know, no more big stories, no more. And they would talk about those things, and I'd just be like, how do I fit into this world? <laughs> yeah. You know, so. So this was GameCube era, sorry, or this was post-GameCube? Oh, yeah. It was GameCube. It was right at the end of the GameCube era. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah, it. and that's why we split, actually. It's not, there wasn't any major disagreements. It, we loved working together. And they had seen the two human concepts. I mean, oh, you came course. up with those during the N64 days, even? Uh, they, they, when they became a second party, they loved yeah. two human. It's yeah. not. It wasn't a matter of not liking the concept. They were on board mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. It's just there was a strategic – it's kind of like when you reset from the N64 to the GameCube. Mm-hmm. It was just a unilateral decision of the company saying, we're going to do these things. And when when they started looking towards the Wii, mm-hmm. uh, which is the direction they were going, uh, and look at, look at the games that came out on the Wii. They weren't games like Too Human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so we saw this, and we had many, many discussions. And as much as we loved working together and trying to put it together, I was just like, I, I, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, how about you make some party games? And I'm like, well, we can make party games, but I don't know if we'll make good party games. Yeah. Eternal Darkness Party. That could be really weird. Juggle your head. <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I, they were, and still to this day, one of the best partners we've ever had. They are really smart they work really hard they really care about their products and i I love nintendo to this day and um you know i i see a lot of people criticizing and criticizing is easy Mm -hmm. criticizing is this one of the easiest things that you can do everyone anyone can criticize anyone control yeah it's all anonymous out there you know whatever but at the end of the day those guys make really really good games and when it comes to who's going to survive in the future, and I, you know, you you guys have heard me before. A lot of people have heard me talk about commoditization and the, you know, I guess, the end of dominance of consoles. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean an end for Nintendo because they make the best games. Whoever makes the best content is going to win. Are going to be around. It's just all about content now. Whether it's on the mobile space, whether it's on your cell phone, whether it's on your PC, whether it's all cloud-based computing, whether whether there's still going to be consoles. Who knows? Who cares? But it's going to be about the content. Yeah. And I think that's why they're always going to re- remain to be players. And it's funny because you hear so many people write them off, and I'm just like, still making good games. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're still making awesome games. So I, I, I just don't write off people who make good games. Well, I it's like, it. it's like think about the transition from movie studios to television, right? And like, yeah. I mean, both movie movie studios and television and TV sets are obviously side by side now nowadays. But that must have been a big step too, where the yeah. guys who are making these big movies were saying like, well. Well, we can't do the, exactly the same thing and thrive, you know. And now we're we're decades later. We're sitting here and we're watching stuff like True Detective and yep. Game of Thrones. Like, just think about how much better that is than what we would have gotten in the old medium, right? And you, Absolutely. like, I always think the some people are really worried that if Nintendo doesn't create a console, they're kind of losing some of, uh, some of the control over. You know, they, they build the hardware that complements their games the best way. But at the same time, they're also barriers, right? Like, if Nintendo didn't have to worry about barriers, they'd give us some pretty freaking awesome games as well. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Like, I, I don't think consoles are going away anytime soon. Um, but, I, you know, the, the companies that are making great games will always rise to the top. Yeah, and it's, it's all about I – I look at them like platforms. And if Nintendo – if their next console is a cloud – 
that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as I get to play, you it's know, Super Mario them. or get to play another Zelda or, yeah. you know, that's what Nintendo is. Nintendo's a brand. It's like Disney. You know, that is worth something. It's worth a lot. Yep. And then, you know, you have people who are being very successful these days. But when you look at it from a content and a brand standpoint, that's the way to look at it from the future. You know, because what can fight this massive commoditization? Well, what fights commoditization is brands. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who stand apart. It's why Apple is so successful, mm-hmm. right? It's why it's not it's not because they make the best technology. Mm-hmm. It's because their brand is so strong. Right. That's right. Right? right. And and those are those are the things that I, I look at for my predictions of the future anyway, of who's going to be around and who's not. And all I know is... I certainly hope they never go away because I love playing their games. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about your company today. Uh, sure. So Quantum Entanglement? Am Quantum I right? Entanglement. QE2 for short. Yes, yes. All right. So <laughs> tell folks, what is what is this? So exactly? we've created this new company. Um, I've, I've partnered up with uh, Paul Rapowski, who's uh, he's got a ton of background in film and television. Um, and um, Jonathan Soon Chung, who's a business investment banker and he's got a lot of tv experience and we're going to create this company that's going to do film television video games all at the same time and that sounds hard dennis yes well it's i i i I guess you don't want to do something that's been done before Uh and and we're trying to approach ground if you look at the movie and television industry they don't talk to the video game industry so we're trying to have this convergence just like with metal gear when we had uh, Konami working with Silicon Knights and Nintendo, that collaboration really hasn't seen a, the light of day like that again. We're trying to bring a convergence in where we're doing all these things at the same time. So imagine Shadow of the Eternals as a TV series as well as a video game mm-hmm. coming out at the same time. That's what we're talking about here, doing mm-hmm. these kind of collaborations. So a little bit what's going on with the Sci-Fi Channel, and but 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 in a, I mean, are you guys more the creative drivers yes. or the consultants who get everybody together? How, we're, how we're the creatives. Work? We're the creatives. So my, my role in the company is chief creative officer. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we're thinking about terms. One of the terms that we're bringing to the table that's totally new, you've heard about showrunners for shows. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the roles that I'm going to play is IP runner. Mm-hmm. So it means be the IP runner for television. If there's going to be a film and if there's going to be a video game, make sure they all go in directions that complement each other rather mm-hmm. than fight each other. Because what's the worst thing with a video game remake of a movie? If it repeats it, if it's just a, a terrible marketing ploy where the game is terrible. Mm-hmm. So we're going to create each thing in its own own way that complements each other. And in some ways, we want the me- mediums to start to merge. Got it. And um, I, I think that there's so much to be learned from these different mediums and interacting with each other that it's got great potential. Hmm. And uh, we want to bring stuff to the table that hasn't been brought to the table before. We've got a we've got Shadow of the Eternals up there as one of the products we're working on. We've got which is for those who don't know is is basically the successor to Eternal Darkness. Yeah, and, spiritual yeah. successor to Eternal Darkness. Mm-hmm. And we've got another unannounced title up there. We're only going to show some pictures up there, but then we've got a bunch of other things in the pipeline too, and we're going to make more announcements in the future. But one of the things we just wanted to do right now was just get it out there that this is the company we're doing. We're trying to look for a convergence. We're trying to bring different groups together to work together for the first time and do these productions that have a big impact and make a difference and and try to put people together that don't normally don't work together in ways that create fantastic content. And are you thinking, like, kind of, when I hear the idea, my mind naturally goes to something like what Blockade is doing or maybe Ubisoft is doing where you're, you're leveraging the same kind of CG as, uh, assets in a TV show that you are using in a, in a game? Or are you, like, would you be saying, 
we're going down the CGI route for movies and television, or could it be live action and everything? It could be. It could be a mix of both. So there's the whole side of we're going to use assets and save money and be more productive, and I mm -hmm. think that's very valuable. But we're thinking about it more along the lines of let's get the best people together from the different mediums and create something new. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see traditionally what's happened in our industry. We'll have we'll maybe have someone in the video game industry like do a movie, but it's all video game people doing movies. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it very rarely do you get a true convergence of people working all together. Yeah. Like I've uh, I've known a lot of people that do games for movies. But they hardly interact with the directors of the movie. They almost never talk. Mm -hmm. So imagine uh, creating productions where it's one team. Mm -hmm. And you're all working together for a common goal. And everyone knows what everyone's doing. And there's there's uh, a strategy to it. Um, and it's it's hard to do that. It's 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 going to be something different. But it's something I'm personally extremely excited about. And it's a, a, it's a big challenge. It's, yeah. It is something, you're absolutely right. It's something mm -hmm. that really hasn't been done before. And... That's what makes it exciting for me. It's certainly not boring. Yeah. yeah. Why, why have a boring life? No, it's a new frontier. And when you think about um, sort of license IP and, the, you know, some of the examples of ones that don't, didn't make it or, you know, weren't successful, it's always because of the constraints of the other things, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, you got to get the Spider-Man game out on time because the movie's coming out like this date. And by the way, you only have a year or something like that. And it's like, well, what if that team was working together from the beginning? Is that sort of the goal then? To that kind is, of that get is them, the you know, and, and get something sort of projected but working together. Most of the time, say, you get, a, you get a script from a movie and it's like two years into production, it can't change. Yeah. And you've got to work with it and you've got nine months to make that game. That's mm -hmm. a train wreck from the beginning. And Absolutely. Teams do it, and it's really tough. It's really hard. And so let's not do that anymore. Let's try to do something where it's a, a team from the beginning that's looking at everything all at once. And if you look at if you look at the company, um, it's got three people, uh, the business guys, the CEO. You've got some one person, me, who's made a lot of video games, and you've got another person who's done a lot of film and television. These are the key people in this company that actually have to say it's not – a company saying, oh, we're going to bring in this, we're going to buy this video game group and then they're going to play a role. It's no, you've got the key people doing it. You know, we're independent and, you know, we're starting out. Um, but there's a lot of potential to make change and, and hopefully we'll be able to do some good stuff. And the other thing that we're doing, and, you know, this is a, a carryover from Precursor, but it's the idea of the singularity where we have fans contributing to the content. So... You, if you have a sanity event for Shadow of the Eternals, you put it in, and then our community is going to pick them and we're going to put them in the game. But now imagine if you want to be an extra on a set, or you, you see this one thing and you want to write a scene for a television, mm -hmm. uh, or a character, you want to write it in. We're going to allow that kind of collaboration. One of the things uh, that I like to think about is this idea called meta content. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier in the podcast uh, for the Metal Gear thing, is if you look at Star Wars, mm -hmm. a lot of the content around Star Wars is actually created by the fans. You've got the main series that Lucas did, but a lot of the outshoot stories and a lot of the writers all contributed to that universe. And the fans have made a substantial impact on that, on, on what it takes. And if you look at games uh, like Dota, that's completely created by the community, um, all community-driven, that is the future of content. So the idea of the singularity is a way in which people can look at QE2, participate, and become one in the creation of the content that they're going to consume. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that, if I was a fan, I, I love creating, but if I was a fan of some movie and I could get in there and talk to, say, Mr. Del Toro, Del Toro or something, or Mr. Mm -hmm. Miyamoto, or if I can interact 
uh, w- with me if I wasn't me. That was kind of strange, but <laughs> I would love to do that. I would mm-hmm. want to do that. I would want to sit back. I really love sitting back and talking with creators. It's probably one of the reasons I, I loved university so much is I could, I didn't, the courses and all that stuff, I just really liked interacting with the pe- people of knowledge and who I respected. And so this whole idea is let's create a place where you can communicate and add to the content where you can make a difference in the stuff that you create. And I, 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 I don't know where it's going to go, but really I think cool. it's going to go to a good place. Yeah, Absolutely. it sounds really interesting. I mean, it's some of the ideas that Will Wright has talked about too, right? Like, can you use the power of the audience to create something really unique? And he's played around with that, mm-hmm. that concept as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So uh, I have one last question for you, sir. Sure. And that is uh, with this company and with, you know, the target of, you know, television, movies, games. On the game platform front, would you come back to Nintendo platforms Absolutely. or are you targeting mobile here? What uh, are we talking about? Look, no, no, whatever makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you never know. If you look at Eternal Darkness, you look at Metal Gear Solid, the history of how those games were pitched and created came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. left field never would have guessed mm-hmm. so to try to predict and say who we'd work with and who we would like certainly uh, clearly I would I, I still love Nintendo mm-hmm. get along I love those guys and if it made sense we'd certainly work with Nintendo um, and at the end of the day um, whatever it takes to make the best content is where we want to go we want to entertain we're entertainers you know? excellent yeah. well, we wish you a lot of luck Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Very yeah. excited about it. You, does that mean you're going to come back to social media in some form? Yes. Yes. I will, I will return. You'll start talking? I'll start talking again on social media. I'll be more careful, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Nintendo Voice Chat. We are a weekly podcast on IGN, and we were late with last week's episode, but we are right on time with this one. Um, so... Very much so, we are part of IGN.com, where you can find a whole bunch of other podcasts, features, videos... Name a pair. You've been here a long time. We have we have uh, hamburger reviews. We've got oh, from uh, Japan. We have, we have everything. Yes. All right, sure. Um, also, uh, just if you have feedback on the show itself, write into nvc at ign Let us know what you think of the show, or head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You know, tell us are we good? Are we bad? Are we okay? We read everything, and we would totally, hopefully, take your feedback into consideration. Lastly, are some Twitter handles, which we need to share. So, Dennis, how can folks find you again? Does your Twitter still exist? No. Well, I haven't made one. You I'm have to make, to a make new one. one soon. I'm making one, so I don't okay. have it yet. Sorry. Got it. All right. Okay. Well, you can You'll find be easy to find. Yes. Uh, I'm Pierre Jan. Okay. And I am Jose, uh, excuse me, at Jose underscore Otero. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back next week Good with fun. more Nintendo Voice Show. I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement. 
as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.